Now, most people have a natural curiosity. It might show itself in different ways among different people, but in one way or another, it's found in most of us. However, it's also true that the things that you may be curious about may be quite different from those of your neighbor. Uh, This happens even in families. Interests vary. And uh, in more than one instance, the failure of parents to recognize or to properly value uh, that difference in the interests of their children have caused problems of one kind or another. As uh, parents uh, don't understand why their child is interested in this or that, and it's not something they're interested in, and they, they, they wrestle with that and, and making opportunity for them to enjoy it and to explore it. On the other hand, a common curiosity about something can build relationships too. Uh, It can bring family members and friends together and uh, can make new friends out of strangers when we have a a common interest or curiosity about something. But it's worth noting that uh, the use of the term itself has really changed a bit over the years, like a lot of words in our language. Um, Today, it refers to the general idea of inquisitiveness or the desire to learn or to know more about something. When we think of curiosity, that's, that's the way we think about it. The word curious or curiosity has its roots, however, in the idea of caring for something. Now, this is reflected when we say things like, I'm interested in your health, or whatever it might be, because I care about you. Have you ever heard that expression or heard it used that way? I'm interested in what's going on with you because I care about you. In this sense, curiosity originally took you beyond passing interest in someone or something, and it had the extra element of actually caring about it because it meant something to you or had some value to you, where you had some personal connection to it. You were not curious simply because something was interesting, but rather because it had some personal relationship to you that was important in one way or another. And that's really how the word began and and the way it was originally used. And now it's become more casual in its usefulness. It implied a watchful, conscious effort to know because knowing all you could about the matter was of vital personal importance. And that's why you were curious about it. Now, with that in mind, we're coming upon the season of the year when we mark and celebrate the work and the blessing of God's love in sending his only begotten son to the world so that perishing men and women might find forgiveness for their sins They might find forgiveness for those offenses that they committed against him and come into possession of that glorious gift of eternal life. Now, setting all the debates aside about dates and times and traditions for the moment, the incarnation of Jesus Christ is a vital doctrine. And it ought to be of the greatest curiosity to anyone who has a real interest in it or 
to anyone who has an interest in discovering how to find peace with God at any time. If there's any vested interest in that concept, then then this is something that we should be curious about. Now, the problems are many with this. But I'm just going to mention four briefly. The first one is familiarity. Familiarity, as the old saying goes, breeds contempt. Uh, It might also be said that it breeds comfort, and that most often leads to a relaxed attitude. And by contempt, we don't mean despite for something, but we mean just a casual attitude towards it. It's just not important anymore. It doesn't become vital any longer. The Lord addressed this attitude of, of contempt in Israel through the prophet Malachi. When he said there, Malachi chapter 1, this is Malachi's prophecy, chapter 1, verse 11, For from the rising of the sun to the setting, my name, the Lord says, will be great among the nations. And in every place incense will be offered to my name. And a pure offering for my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. But you, he's speaking to his own people now, you profane it when you say that the Lord's table is polluted. And its fruit, that is, its food, may be despised. But you say, what a weariness this is. And you snort at it, says the Lord of hosts. You bring what has been taken by violence or is lame or sick, and this you bring as your offering. Shall I accept that from your hand, says the Lord? Here my God, he says, who is to be worshipped in every place by the burning of incense and humility and, and coming to me in love and worship. And here among my own people, the things that ought to be precious in their sight and important to them, they have become unimportant. They become wearisome to them, almost tedious. And so they have reverted to a relaxed attitude. And in that relaxed attitude, the Lord says, now you even sin against me. Because you're not being careful about what you bring in worship. You're just bringing what you can when you want and however you want instead of being careful about it. Secondly, people are often in danger of becoming content with tradition, even though it may represent nothing more than a passing knowledge. And they're content with it sometimes, no matter how superstitious or superficial or erroneous it might be. They, they just become content with the tradition. In Jerusalem, in the days of Jeremiah, the people had come to superstitiously view the temple rather than God and his truth as the source of their safety and their blessing. And rather than seeing those things as being theirs in the name of the Lord, they became superstitious about the temple itself. And in Jeremiah chapter 7 and verse 4, the prophet says to those people, do not trust in these deceptive words. This is the temple of the Lord. This is the temple of the Lord. The temple of the Lord. Because they would chant those words. And by chanting those words, it was somehow supposed to make their devotion acceptable. They weren't bringing their hearts. They weren't coming in love. They weren't coming in worship. They were coming out of their own desires, and they were even profaning the house of the Lord in their worship. 
But they said, because this is the house of the Lord, somehow we'll be blessed and sanctified by being in it. And the prophet's saying, don't trust that. They were clinging to their traditions, but they had become theologically bankrupt. They disastrously equated superstitious traditions with spiritual truths. And that can be a problem in this season of the year. And thirdly, when the luster fades, when the truly curious wonder is lost, then the evangelical spirit wanes as well. All we need to do to illustrate this point, I think, is to look at the difference in evangelical zeal between a newly saved individual and the average long-time believer. The person who's just found Christ and their attitude towards the gospel and the message of the gospel and telling others about it and those who have enjoyed its privileges for a long, long time. Now, I understand that that difference is more complex than just a matter of outward zeal, and that often the fire burns hotter, that burns longer and deeper. But nevertheless, that reality often makes the point that when the curious wonder is lost, it leads to a weakening of evangelical zeal. Fourthly and last, being pounded constantly by troubling and stunning counter-messages from the world can smother spiritual curiosity and interest, let alone dim the wonder and the awe of divine truth. Even while I was working on this sermon, headlines were appearing on my notification fields that were likely to beat down all my efforts to present you with these things today. To so burden my mind and my heart with the urgency of worldly things and issues to make spiritual truth and wonder seem like an extravagant luxury that ought to be postponed for another less crucial time. Because after all, these important things are happening right now. So why should I spend time talking about the incarnation of Jesus Christ and celebrating that when there are all these important issues flashing across the screen and coming into my life and telling me these are the important things you need to pay attention to right now. These are the wonders of your day. When in reality, there's no comparison. There's one other thing that comes into play here, I think, and it has its part in all of this. It's in 1 Corinthians chapter 2 and verse 14 where Paul says to the Corinthians, the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God for they are folly to him and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. The wonder that anyone possesses towards spiritual truth, beloved, that wonder is a gift from God. And because it is a gift from God, it must be sought from God because it doesn't come to us naturally. We see so often all the efforts being made to make the story of Christ's birth more uh, powerfully emotionally, more powerful emotionally. That's an effort 
to produce something that really only God can produce in the heart. An awe and wonder for his truth. Now, look at this psalm before you. Psalm 111. Praise the Lord. I will give thanks to the Lord with my whole heart in the company of the upright in the congregation. Great are the works of the Lord, studied by all who delight in them. Full of splendor and majesty is his work, and his righteousness endures forever. He has caused his wondrous work to be remembered. The Lord is gracious and merciful. He provides food for those who fear him. He remembers his covenant forever. He has shown his people the power of his work and giving them the inheritance of the nations. The works of his hands are faithful and just. All his precepts are trustworthy. They're established forever and ever to be performed with faithfulness and uprightness. He sent redemption to his people. He has commanded his covenant forever. Holy and awesome is his name. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. All those who practice it have a good understanding. His praise endures forever. For the remainder of our time here this morning, I just want to consider verses 2 and 3. Look again at verse 2. Great are the works of the Lord, studied by all who delight in them. Full of splendor and majesty is his work, and his righteousness endures forever. This part of the psalm makes reference first to the Lord's craftsmanship. The work of the Lord implies craftsmanship and skill. It's an implicit part of the work he does. We all know craftsmen that we can rely on. We can, we can count on them. And we know craftsmen we wouldn't rely on. We know those who've done a job and we don't even worry about it. And we know those whose job we had to check up on and uh, didn't really feel content content with until we went around and fixed all the things that weren't quite right. Do you know craftsmen in those two categories? Ones whose work you you don't even think twice about? And those who you think, yeah, I'm going to ask him to do that, but I better keep an eye on him. We know people like that. And in this case, the very fact that anything, beloved, is the work of the hands of your God, if we can use that term, guarantees its perfection and its reliability. And neither is there anything that he has ever done that's base or crude or or has any base or crude element to it. They're all glorious works. And then he refers to the greatness of of this craftsmanship of the Lord. And we're reminded that the work done by the workmanship of Jehovah is great. All of his works are great. No small things, says John Trapp, are done by so great a hand. No small things are done by so great a hand. 
the works done by Jehovah are loud, long, mighty, and noble in nature. And that's the idea of greatness here. They're loud and can't be ignored. You can't ignore them. They're just by their very nature, they can't be ignored. They're not things done for a moment in time, but they're done with uh, uh, eternal significance and consequences. They're so mighty that only he could do them. And they're right. They're holy. They're just. They're good in their character. There's a sense of surprise here in this greatness and in these works. Matthew Henry points that out. They're full of unexpected matters of the greatest significance. Even the most seemingly insignificant of them have tremendous significance. He, he uses this illustration. He says, as the life of the ant is more industrious than that of the elephant, but it's seldom noticed, so it is with the smaller works of God. Sometimes they're far more industrious than they appear, than, than even the greater works that we see. And, and yet they are mighty, even in themselves. Plumer says, when God makes or does the least thing, he acts like a god, and his workmanship is worthy of him. In Isaiah 64, verses 3 and 4, we read this. When you did awesome things that we did not know for, you came down, the mountains quaked at your presence. From of old, no one has heard or perceived by the eye, nor uh, by the ear, nor eye, has seen a God besides you who acts for those who wait for him. Matthew Henry says, the more we look into the things of God, the more they give us a pleasing surprise. The more we look, the more pleasingly surprised we are at what we see. And these points all beg fleshing out in more detail. But for now, we just have to be content with just these general observations concerning his work and then just make the obvious application in the context. Does the workmanship of the Lord in the work of the Incarnation still stand out in your eyes as great. As great. As something loud that cannot be ignored. As something mighty that only God himself could do. As something with personal significance to you as an individual. That's the question. The works of the Lord, we're told next, are studied by all who delight in them. What does the psalmist mean by studied? Would you ever come across something that wasn't quite clear, and you took a rag or a cloth and you rubbed it so that you could look at it more closely? Did you ever do that? Uh, maybe you were trying to bring out the grain in the wood, and you knew it was under there, and you just had to rub it a little bit more, and sure enough, there the, the beauty of that, of that piece of wood came out. Maybe it was a stone 
that uh, you, you found and you put it in a tumbler and you, and you rubbed it and had it tumble in that, stone, uh, in that tumbler over and over until the luster of the stone came out. There's an element of that in the flavor of this word studied. It bears the idea of going back and forth over something in pursuit of seeing it more clearly and seeing its glory more carefully. And this is one of those things that you can study and study and go back and forth over again and again and new luster, new new beauty arises from it. Now, notice that these works of the Lord are looked into like this by those who delight in them. And that brings you back to curiosity. To the original meaning of curiosity. The delight referred to here is not just the delight of a passing fancy or a moment's entertainment. It's the delight of someone who has a personal interest in it, in the thing that's being revealed. If I come across a a video on diamond cutting, I might watch it with passing interest. I just want to see how they go about doing that and what kind of skill it requires and, and how they do it. But if I hand an uncut diamond that I've bought at great price and want to have it cut, my interest in the matter suddenly becomes personal and intense. I'm not just a casual observer who's interested in saying, oh, well, that's, 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 that's just interesting. There's a, a diamond cutting video here. Let's watch it and see what happens. Uh, I'm there at the jeweler wanting to know how it's going to be cut, who's going to do it, what are his qualifications, is he going to destroy this expensive stone, or is he going to beautify it, what's going to happen with it, and my my involvement is personal. It's expressed this way in Isaiah 46, in verses 8 through 10. The Lord says, remember this and stand firm, recall to mind you transgressors. Remember the former things of old, for I am God, and there is no other. I am God, and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning, and from ancient times things yet not done, saying, My counsel shall stand, and I will accomplish all of my purpose. We have an interest, by God's grace, beloved, by God's grace, We have an interest in the purpose of God. In everything done. And we have a deep, intense, personal interest in this work of God sending his son into the world to die for us. The purpose of the Lord is everything and anything that delights him in performing it to his own glory. And those who delight in the works of the Lord are those who find joy and interest in their various pieces, their designs, their purposes, and their objects, suggests Dr. Hammond. And you see how it applies here. 
Is the incarnation of Jesus Christ a matter of passing interest or personal interest to you at this point in time in your life? Woe, says the prophet Isaiah, in the name of the Lord, to those who have lyre and harp, tabernacle and flute and wine at their feasts, but they do not regard the deeds of the Lord or see the work of his hands. Woe to those who have great celebrations, but are not concentrating on the deeds of the Lord, their splendor and their majesty and their greatness. And that's what we're told next in this psalm, that the works of the Lord are full of splendor. Or as the old King James says, they're honorable. Now, sadly, that word honorable no longer carries the element of splendor or grandeur that's implied here. And that's why translators have changed it, because the Hebrew, it carries that idea, that sense of splendor and honor and awe in what is honorable. But we don't always think of honorable in that sense anymore. In other places where it's translated, this word is translated glory. In First Chronicles 29.11, Thine, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory or the splendor or the honor and the victory and the majesty for all that is in the heaven and in the earth is thine. That is the kingdom, O Lord, and you were exalted as head above all. These works of the Lord, beloved, all of them, we're not just taking the one here, but just for a moment speaking of them all, they are imposing in nature for their sheer beauty, for their excellence, and for their majesty. And it was the very nature of the work in the incarnation of Jesus Christ that split open the heavens. This was act of great splendor who has seen anything like this who has heard anything like this and it divided open the heavens and it allowed the glory of the Lord to shine all around those shepherds and then the scene was filled up with legions of angels who said in loud unison glory, glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased it brought out of heaven a testimony of glory to the Lord. Then we're told that his works are full of majesty. That is, they swell with excellence and honor and glory. You can get a feel for the language by comparing it with Isaiah 2.9, or rather 2.10. The Lord is calling for the abandonment of idols, and he's warning his people that judgment is near at hand. And then he says to those who will not repent, in Isaiah 2.10, Enter into the rock and hide in the dust from before the terror of the Lord and from the splendor of his majesty. You can kind of get the picture there, right? Why are they supposed to hide in the dust and in the rocks? Because the power, the, 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 the awesome presence of the Lord is about to descend on them in judgment. And so, in the face of that majesty, they run to hide themselves. 
So the majesty is this excellency, this honor, this glory that is evident in what the Lord does. And this story of God sending his son into the world never grows old for the one who can detect the swelling excellence and glory of it. Not exhibited in the music or in the songs of choirs. They do aid in showing it off, yes. But the swelling excellence and glory is only truly seen in its personal and awesome nature. This is what God, if you're a believer, this is what God did for you. This is an awesome work full of excellence and majesty and wonder that he did for you. For your sake. For your need. Whenever the Messiah, Handel's famous oratorio, is presented, there are generally true groups, true groups of people present. Those who are awed by the majesty and the glory of the music and perhaps the genius that produced it. And the talents of those who are performing it. And those who are awed by those things and at the same time overwhelmed by the word of God and the way it applies to them. And there's no comparison to the two. There's no comparison to the two. With the believer to sit and to listen to that oratorio and to listen to the word of God being presented as it is there is presented in a beautiful setting and we rejoice in that setting. But it's the doctrine, the message, the testimony that reaches the heart of the believer. The majesty of what God has done. And then we're told lastly that the works of the Lord bear witness to his eternal righteousness. The righteousness of the Lord is his pure rectitude, his, his perfect rightness and holy justice, all of which make up his righteousness. And it stands firm, we're told here, and it abides and endures forever. And you can see that in the works of the Lord. This truth, beloved, the incarnation of Jesus Christ, puts on display the enduring righteousness of God. In Ecclesiastes chapter 3 and verse 14, Solomon writes, I perceive that whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it, nor anything taken from it. God has done it, so the people fear before him. The parts of this whole, the story of the incarnation, only serve to make it all the more astounding and glorious. I can't deal with them here and now. There's just not time to do it. But you have time to consider it all on your own. To contemplate just how all of this came to be. How did all this happen? And the way it displays the righteousness of your God. And hopefully, over the next few weeks, we'll be able to set some of this before you. But it brings us to the question. And this is the question, beloved of the Lord. 
Does the splendor and majesty of the work of God in the incarnation still inflame your curiosity? Matthew Henry says it so well. They are admirable and memorable, these works, fit to be registered and kept on record. Much that we do is so trifling that it's not fit to be spoken of or told again. The greatest kindness is to forget it, but notice is to be taken of God's works and account to be kept of them. Is it the work of God that you delight in? I don't mean to enjoy the traditions and occasions associated with the season. And, and they're legitimate and they're to be enjoyed. Don't misunderstand me. They're to be enjoyed in the Lord. But I'm speaking of the grand and awesome spiritual truth that is the work of God. The question, question is, if I detect some deficiency in these matters, well, what am I to do? What course can I take? to bring about a change if I say, no, you know, I'm not really curious about this like I used to be. Well, here are three suggestions. The first one is the obvious one, pray. Because the true splendor and majesty of these things is spiritually discerned. And we have to go to God, the Holy Spirit, and we have to ask God himself to press them on us by that spirit, on our minds and on our hearts. And we talk about getting in the mood of the season. And we've got to have the right music out and the right decorations up and those sort of things to kind of get in the mood for the season. Now let me put you in the mood, but that's not what we're talking about here. We're talking about praying that God will press upon your heart the splendor and the majesty of this. That's supposed to be secondary. I mean, those decorations and that celebration are to be secondary to the awe that we feel in the truth of the matter. You recall that when Zacharias, the father of John, was first approached about these great things, do you remember what was going on? He's in the temple, and outside we read the whole multitude of the people were praying outside at the hour of incense. And what they were praying for was that God would reveal his glory to the priest serving in the temple. And the Lord answered that prayer and brought the majesty and splendor of this before the eyes of Zacharias. King David prayed in Psalm 25, verses 4 through 5, Make me to know your ways, O Lord. Teach me your paths. Lead me in your truth and teach me, for you are the God of my salvation. For you I wait all the day long. We need to pray if we want to be impressed afresh with the splendor and majesty of these things. Secondly, we need to take time to ponder on them. To ponder on them. You'll recall that's what Mary did. Luke 2.19 tells us that Mary treasured up all these things and pondered them in her heart. She thought about them. She mulled them over and over in her mind and her heart. What is this? What does it mean to me? What are the angels saying? How's, what, what's the impact of this? What does it mean for me as, as a woman? What does it mean for me as a believer? 
What does it mean for me as a child of God? And going over those things, over and over in her mind, she was set up with the wonder of them all. All our celebrating and singing is not worth anything, beloved, if we're not out to grow nearer to the God who is at the heart of it all. These are things that the human mind can never exhaust. And if they're too great to be fully comprehended, then they're too great to be forgotten or ignored, says Edward Marsh. And beloved, doesn't all this reflect back here to this table, to this meal? Isn't this what he came into the world to do? To offer himself a ransom for you? Aren't you the perishing one he came to save? Aren't you that one? And that's the story. God sent his only begotten son of the world to give salvation to those who were perishing so that you might not perish. And this meal is the culmination of it all, but it begins with this great work of incarnation, at least in its earthly manifestation. And the third thing to help you is proclaim them. Proclaim them. This is what the shepherds did. They not only received the message and went to see what was told them, but were told that when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child, and all who heard it wondered at the shepherds at what the shepherds told them. <clears throat> and it's so easy to miss the significance of what's said here. Let me read again. And when they saw it, they made known the cherubs they saw flying over the manger, the animals who were talking and praising God, and the little drummer boy who came in and gave his humblest gift to the Lord, and they told them all about the, the light and the halo around the, the little baby in the manger, and the halo around Mary's head, and the shining on her face. Is that what they told people about? Did they tell them anything about what they saw? Not if we take what the Word of God says here literally. What they told people about was what was told them concerning the things that they saw. And what was told them? What was told them was that they should be in a state of peace and joy because God had sent his Son into the world to redeem them. And that was the message that they were given. So there would be peace between God and man. And beloved, as long as we have a sense of the, the awesomeness, of the majesty and the splendor of this, we're going to have a desire to proclaim it. But when that dims, so does the desire to proclaim what we've found and what we know concerning the Lord Jesus Christ. You are those, beloved, who by God's grace are not as mesmerized by the scenery as you are convinced by the doctrine of the truth concerning the incarnation and what it means to you. And the more you declare that and explain it, 
the more the splendor and the majesty of it will fill your hearts. Did you ever talk to somebody about an experience in their lives and they want to tell you about it and suddenly when they begin to explain it you see all the emotion rush into them? You know, they, they, they say, I want to tell you something. I just want to tell you something that happened to me. And then they begin to tell the story. But as the intimate and blessed character of the story comes out, they become emotional, sometimes brought to tears as they tell you the story. Where you can see the joy in their face or in their eyes when they tell the story. And that's what happens when you recite these things and their personal and intimate relationship to you. The bucolic nature of the manger scene is not nearly so profound as the truth that in that manger, the only begotten Son of God, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God, or did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. And having all this beloved in reverence, having the word of life as this passage ends with in reverence, it's an important key to our evangelistic spirit. In Philemon 1.6, Paul writes and says, I pray that the sharing of your faith may become effective for the full knowledge of every good thing that is in us for the sake of Christ. The sharing of our faith being effective for the good knowledge of every good thing that God has done to us for us for the splendor and majesty of this event in sending his son that he might die for us, that we might live through him. Let's pray. Father in heaven, uh, we are sometimes dull and sometimes slow, sometimes tired, sometimes, Lord, distracted. But we pray, Father, that you would never allow us to lose sight of the splendor and the majesty of your work. And Lord, that we wouldn't lose it in regard to this truth, which every believer has a personal interest in. And if, they're, if you're not a believer, Lord, that person uh, has confined an interest there, an interest in them to be discovered in what you did in sending your son out of love that men and women might not perish. Father, we pray that as we celebrate now uh, our Savior's death and his resurrection, that, Lord, it will be uh, a way of opening to us the celebration of his incarnation. Lord, 
where we are weak, please, Father, make us strong. Give us that sense of awe and wonder, that curiosity that becomes us as redeemed believers. Where we ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen.